Welcome back, friends and fellow philosophers, to this Wild Isle podcast. I'm your host, Marquise. This is the first time I've introduced myself. I've always forgotten every other single time, but I will not forget to introduce my guest, Brad, a.k.a. Wraith. How are you doing this evening, Brad? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've been excited for this one. So last time I had you on, we talked about writing. I think it was the genre podcast for the writing cast. This time, I actually wanted to talk a little bit more about just interests that I think we have in in common in general, uh, whether they be philosophical, political, politico-philosophical, just general interest outside of that. I know uh, you, I believe, see, I, I don't know this about you, that you are a musician. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Uh, mainly bass and a little guitar. So I'll definitely be asking you about that. So uh, for all of you listening in, make sure you stick around for the great conversation. But before we begin, I want to direct you to my website, wildislelit.com. There's lots of things that you can find there. Most importantly, my contact form, if you would like to be part of this podcast, if I know you or know of you or you know of me and you think that you would be an interesting guest to have on the show, either for the regular podcast or the writing cast, uh, go ahead there, uh, wildislelit.com slash contact and send me a form. Or if there's a topic that you want to hear discussed for the writing cast, you can go ahead and do that there. I won't run down the list of remaining uh, topics today. I'll probably post them up with these videos across social media. Um, also, while you're there at wildoutlet.com, uh, check out my editing page. If you are an author and you have a manuscript that you need to sharpen, or if you want to improve your skills and hearken back to the uh, ways of writing of our ancestors, then you can hire me as your style guide at the Wild Isle Style Guide. Uh, you can check out um, my offerings there. I've got three different packages. I'm thinking of expanding it in the near future. So do that. Jump in there while the prices are low because with our rapid inflation, I'm going to have to increase prices and I hate it, uh, but that's how it is. Uh, also, while you're there at wildoutlet.com, check out my novel, Wand Smoke Broken. It's a weird fantasy fiction uh, novel with an American twist. You know who came up with that? Brad came up with that. And I love it. Uh, it reads a little <laughs> bit like a Western mixed with a literary novel. I think you guys will think it's a lot of fun. First chapter is free on my website. Lastly, last news. I know they said the last thing was last, but it wasn't. Uh, I, If you're listening to this about when it releases, I may very well still be doing a Kickstarter campaign to fund the covers for uh, Wand Smoke Tales from the Labyrinth. That's a story collection I'm going to be releasing, uh, but I am an impoverished author and editor and philosopher here in Wheeling, West Virginia, uh, and so I can hardly afford to eat. So you can save me uh, and go check out the Kickstarter campaign. You can find links to it uh, everywhere, particularly on my website. If you can, uh, throw a couple bucks toward my way so I can get these book covers commissioned with a real artist uh, because I actually want to pay someone to do real work uh, for the book covers. There'll be five covers in total, so your money is going to go a long way. And with that out of the way, Brad, um, I think how I want to start this conversation off um, is essentially where we left off after the end of our conversation uh, during the writing cast. So um, you had sent my way uh, a Stefan Molyneux video, and I am bringing up Stefan Molyneux because he actually was very formative in my own uh, philosophical background. Uh, really, I think Stefan is where I got into philosophy as such uh, under the name philosophy. Before that, I had inklings and interests, um, but wasn't quite uh, formalized in my approach and in my education. So 
what I'd like to ask you, because we have that as a common bridge, um, how did you end up finding Stefan Molyneux on the wide, big, wide internet? I'm not quite sure. I probably just heard the name mentioned here and there from different YouTubers, uh, Sargon of Akkad and Razorfist come to mind. Um, hearing the usual, you know, nonsense about him, like being a white nationalist and whatnot or something. I might, might have heard Kraut mention him as well. But then I uh, eventually I got to watch some of his videos and thought, this, this, this is pretty compelling stuff this guy's putting out there. So, you know, I just watch him every now and then. Yeah, I came through a different avenue first of Pawn. So I believe I was coming out of like the new atheist movement. And uh, I think Atheism Plus was currently crashing and burning. And that sent me to look to new people. I was also a watcher of Sargon of Akkad, uh, a.k.a. Carl Benjamin over at the Lotus Eaters. Shout out to them. They do great work over there, even if Connor is a little bit yes, cheeky sometimes. <laughs> um, so did you have any background with the uh, the new atheists back then? Uh, I don't know if um, you were around. Kind of. I was watching like The Amazing Atheist as a teenager. I was an atheist as a teenager. I'm not anymore. I read a little bit of Hitchens and Harrison uh, Dawkins. Um, I think by the time the Atheism Plus thing was starting, I was kind of removed from it a little bit. Like I wasn't, what is it, extensively watching too many of them anymore, I think. Um, yeah, not too much more to say about the uh, my background there. Yeah, so then we came in. Uh, so you came in from the Sargon and the Razor, Razor Fist side more so. So you had been... Uh, how long ago would that have been? Because I'm trying to place you in time. Like, uh, so let's say, uh, what what were you doing around roundabouts 2008? Because that would probably be around when that was. Uh, 2008, I was just getting out of high school. That was way before I was aware of him at all. Okay, so uh, when did I? Hell, when did I graduate high school? Twenty. 10 i think so you're you're probably a little bit older than i am um tj no, Kirk, i graduated 2012 i guess you're a year or two older than me oh so it's reversed uh well who knows yep. now we know uh wild isle listeners <laughs> um but yeah i've actually heard mentioned um someone else that i encountered randomly in in life had also encountered tj kirk he happened to be someone who uh it's kind of I, I'm not going to disparage the man. Um, I could, but I won't, um, you know, because he, he went, he, I don't know how he is in his personal life. Uh, I haven't kept up with him in maybe a, a decade now because it was a right, you know, that's about the time you listen to, to The Amazing Atheist, right? Is, is it about, about high school and then into college is when you, you start to uh, perhaps expand upward and outward. Um, but he yeah, definitely had it went for me. Yeah, uh, he definitely had an, an influence. He would say things. I actually was just having a conversation before this recording today, and you can tell me what you think of this. Um, something that he had said that had really stuck with me. He was kind of doing the the classic, um, a bit left wing liberal critique of modern consumer culture, and he was saying, you know, we have all these people, and all they're doing is waiting for distractions. Do you remember that one? I do not. Oh, you missed that one. Uh, yeah, that was one of his uh, his things that 
I thought was actually quite poignant. You know, the man is actually, I think, fairly intelligent. Um, he can be now and then. He can be. Yeah, I haven't kept up. Have you kept up with him in uh, recent years? No, I've only heard this and that. I stopped watching his content quite a while ago. Yeah, it seems like that that was kind of part of the the fall and the crash. Um, for those viewers listening from like the the new atheist side, um, there were some YouTubers who were popular back then. One that comes to mind was Thunderfoot. Uh, you might know Thunderfoot through his his interactions with Sargon. Oh yeah, I uh, heard I heard a lot about that when uh, when all that went down. Yeah, it was a real tragedy. Uh, in in the years past, he had been a, a really entertaining, decent figure. He made really scientific focused videos before. I think it was actually one that I never watched extensively. I um I was just aware of him. I never really delved into his content much. Yeah, he was one of those types where I think he is like a double PhD in chemistry and physics. Like the the man was a genius. He worked in like a nuclear reactor. He would like take his phone and record around the reactor it was it was cool um this is also around the time where you know now we're having a kind of revitalization of uh religion and christianity that's kind of partly what i talked to um adam about in the podcast that should be out before this one um and before that though um and tell me if you remember this and we'll come back around to stefan and then into your personal philosophy in particular after we've covered this common ground between us um before then, though, I don't know if you remember the, uh, let's say, the Christian Dominionist movement um, that rose about before that. So this was when you had um, the the hardball pitch of intelligent design. This is actually what uh, engendered the New Atheist to become popular, was the uh, prevalence of what I could describe as like fundamentalist evangelical uh, Christianity, um, particularly as it made its way into the state. Um, and then that gave rise to the the or gave room really to the backlash by the by the new atheists. It gave them ground to attack. Did you get to experience that at all? Not real time. I think I was. Um, I might have been in the after because we're talking late twenty tens, and I was kind of just coming into it um, at that point. I think. Oh man, you missed out on a lot. Yeah. A lot of the stuff I was not aware of until after the fact, I think. Okay, then it really seems like um, your your move into um, let's say the the interest in we'll, we'll use Stefan as a jumping off board. Is there a better jumping board to use than Stefan? Were there other uh, influences that uh, you were listening to at that around the time that might be more relevant? What time are we talking about again? So let's say around the times that you started to watch, let's say, Stefan Molyneux's content. Uh, when was that that I got into his content? I have trouble keeping track of it all. I want to say probably 2018 or 19 that I started watching some of his stuff semi-regularly. Oh, hell, that's a big jump. That's much later than yeah. myself. <laughs> yeah, no wonder. I'm aware that he's... Go ahead. I'm aware that he's he's been been doing it for quite a while. I think since like 2006 or seven. And I saw I've seen some of his older videos, but yeah, it was a while before I was um, anyway extensively familiar with him. Well, for those out there listening who don't know, so Stefan Molyneux is a very very popular Canadian philosopher. Um, he promotes an, uh, anarcho-capitalism essentially. Uh, as far as I know, I don't think he's changed on that view. Um, and his fundamental moral philosophy is the um, 
universally preferable behavior, um, UPB. Um, are you a big subscriber to UPB or a subscriber at all? Or um, are you a, are you a libertarian? All what like what what what's your 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 thoughts? Um, it doesn't have to be in regard to Stefan. I just wanted to use him to to get to this question, really. So, like, how do you describe yourself, Brad? Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to say at any given time. Um, his his principles of like I'm aware of the non-aggression principle and UPB and all that. Like I have I have some like surface level knowledge of it. I, I'm really not. Um, I wouldn't have I wouldn't say I have a deep knowledge of philosophy. I've just you know seen some of his videos and I'm somewhat familiar with um, the background of Greek philosophy. Um, if asking if I am I libertarian, it's funny. I almost was one in high school, and then I leaned far left, and then I've kind of bounced back to leaning somewhat in a libertarian direction, if only because I don't like uh, absolute power. Yeah, that that tends to be um, kind of that corrective path. A lot of people uh, go down. Sometimes they do it in like a, a bit of a rever reverse order to you. So I know coming out of high school myself, I was um, very left leaning. Um, liberal. Uh, I, I guess yeah, I would say left-leaning liberal type, like the type that you don't really, the type that get confused and think that they're progressives because progressive is the word they use to describe themselves before um, what we see as and call progressive today are running them off a cliff. Uh, so yeah, that's what I was in high school, um, mostly because the people around me uh, could not make good critiques. So like if someone had, uh, this is actually why Stefan was relevant to me, because that was the first time I'd encountered anyone making um, what we could roughly say are right-wing philosophical critiques of the left-wing ideas that it was posited. So, you know, you, you're given these sophisticated arguments in high school, uh, at least I was, I didn't, I wasn't able to parse through them. I wasn't able to see any presuppositions being made. It just made sense. And the resistance I got were, uh, let's say, underqualified. West Virginia high school teachers, <laughs> right? Um, and then we also had that that Christian, um, very inarticulate Christian backlash, right? I don't want to. I'm not trying to besmirch Christianity as a whole or even in part, really. But uh, that is to say that at the time, the uh, intellectualism and in, in academia had been utterly abandoned by the right, and uh, they're. I don't know if if they're trying to bring it back or not. Um, but uh, it was then that I went into kind of the libertarian ideas. But then you mentioned it's kind of hard to describe yourself, right? Uh, because the labels become so, um, let's say, loaded in people's minds. Like, uh, is that something that you you're aware of? Like, right when you go to say a word or apply a word, you're worried. Like, okay, this is going to make them think these twelve wrong things that I have to then reverse engineer out of their head. Yeah, that, that's part of it, but it's also because I'm not even sure I understand the terms well enough to uh, to be properly applying them to myself. And that's fair. Uh, that's fair because it is it is tricky, uh, particularly in the you know the, the the labels, the terms, the names are not used very consistently, right? So, like if I was uh, if I was forced on the spot, I would say like I don't know, like uh, I'm a anarcho-capitalist in spirit, but probably a Confucianist in practice because I had it beaten into me through uh, years and years and years of martial arts training um, in a sense that 
I recognize that hierarchies are inevitable and that the, in the very Lockean sense, and that they're, you know, you you have a a state as a, a night's watchman, ideally, because it's a necessary evil due to the, uh, this is the Confucian bit, the inability of the people to act like adults. Like they're like feuding children that an adult must intercede at some point in order for them to not, um, you know, fall into uh, the term people are using nowadays is a narco tyranny, right? But like even then, like, you know, that, that term wasn't being used last year in the common media sphere. So it gets very hard to, to pin it down. Uh, you mentioned you had a bit of a background in Greek, uh, some of the Greek philosophers. Are we just talking Socrates, Plato, Aristotle? Yeah, I wouldn't say a background. I'm just uh, somewhat familiar, like I guess a surface level from my familiarity with most of them from taking high philosophy in high school, but I've not done any extensive reading on the subjects. Like I'm aware of Plato's uh, Allegory of the Cave, and I've heard of the of the Republic. Um, doesn't really go much deeper than that. Oh, so we're still kind of um, new and exploring then. Hmm. Yeah. Um, have you? I saw that. So we've had, what, two aphorisms posted so far? I wanted to just talk about those a little bit. Yep. Yeah, so um, I'm actually really excited about that. Um, so I, for those of you, I'm sure people who are listening to this podcast know, I try to post uh, five of these little aphorisms a week. And then uh, I saw that Brad recently has been very occasionally trying his hand at them as well and doing a very good job, I might say. Um, both in the the content and clarity of that content, and then the pre, uh, the presentation. I'm rather lazy. I just use the same picture and, and font <laughs> and then throw it up there. Where um, you know Brad has this nice, colorful image and very beautiful uh, font overlaid, and it's it's not overly long, so that the text can be nice and readable. Um, so I know that you had seen me do them, and you'd mentioned me. Was there any other uh, anything else that had driven you to you know, try your hand at like boiling down your, your, your thoughts in in that form. Um, I think other than seeing your aphorisms, I don't know that I would point to any one influence. It's just the, you know, these, these thoughts that come to mind from time to time, but I, you know, sit on for a while and let them develop and think, okay, maybe, maybe this is, uh, this is as close to correct as I can manage. And then, you know, at, at some point it's decided to write some of them down to, uh, uh, see how they sound, I guess. Well, they sound pretty damn good. Uh, are, do you have any more that you happen to be uh, boiling on at the moment? Any 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 uh, thoughts? Any issues? Any questions? Any problems that just are haunting you, like uh, wraiths hiding? <laughs> funny, right? Wraiths hiding behind your shoulders, <laughs> lurking behind your back, ready to spring out at any moment. Uh, I wouldn't say there's any. Uh, there there might be. More, more like more like straight thoughts that um, if I figure out what to do with, I'll uh, I'll make something out of it. Yeah, well, the one that you'd mentioned, uh, it was in a comments exchange over at Minds. I uh, I can't remember if it was under one of Captain Eternus's uh, or Michael. Uh, he's been on the podcast. You can find out who that is, listeners. Um, but it might have been one of his questions of the day. But we had a, a small exchange where, uh, surprisingly. I think it was due to, I don't know if it was due to one of our conversations. It was due to something. You have to remind me um, that you, you 
it, it, it inspired the, the most recent aphorism, I think, right? Is that correct? Uh, do you mean the one about truth? Uh, yeah, I think it was about truth. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely was the one about truth. Let's talk about that for one for a little bit because there's, I think there's some interesting conversation in there. So, Ready? yeah, yeah, just what? Um, uh, let's see if I can. I don't know that I don't know that I'd be able to bring it up right away. Um, do you remember? You don't have to obviously, obviously remember it well enough to know it, but. Um, if you it, could, you remember it well enough to like paraphrase the the general idea to the audience. I can pull it up real quick and just read it aloud if that works. That would be awesome. Thank you. Red live for the one. first time with the Wild Isle podcast. <laughs> Aphorisms by Brad the Wraith. All right, so there. Yeah, so truth. Here we are. Is that for it to load? Yeah, so what I wrote is, uh, the truth, you say, that I must ask, who am I to make any claim to any truth whatsoever? The truth, I think, is akin to God, the ultimate that which is of this world, unknowable to us except in the briefest glimpses. But still, many will passionately or viciously defend their vision of the truth. So convinced are they that the world must be shaped according to their will. Yeah, there's like a ton of depth to that, right? So um, let's, let's pick that apart. I think that would be an interesting conversation. So the truth you say, uh, or the, the truth. So who who am I to say? I think that was the first line. Um, you know, if you're if you're a normal person, you're a normie walking around the street. It's like, I know what the truth is. The truth are facts. Um, what do you have to say to that? Because that's what the, that's what the normie would think when they when they see that first line, right? Usually, they think, "Well, I know the truth. The truth is what I see, and the truth is the facts that are, and I see them, so I know." Well, yeah, what's wrong with that? If I I'm going to be the normie, uh, I want you to pick me apart here. Well, you could very well. Be. It, it depends on what facts you're referring to and who they're coming from, and what sort of information you're uh, taking into your brain, how you're pondering it, and you know. Um, more concise way I put it you, you what facts are you dealing with what facts are you not dealing with what are you factoring in and not factoring into your worldview and how do you know you're not just tailoring it according to your own pre preconceived notions well I watch CNN and Fox News so I know it all are you, and you don't think they would have an interest in uh, telling you things that aren't quite true well of course they do but that's why I watch them both and then I think it through myself and then I come to my opinions and then that's what I know I don't have these conversations very often, so I very oh, don't you're, know where to take them. Hey, you are a lucky man to not have this conversa these conversations. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you ever wonder why my my aphorisms are so uh, so caustic, it's because I've had these interactions. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, right. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, what you, what we run into there is the um, it's actually what the latter half of your aphorism talks about. Like they'll defend it ferociously. Like they've they have a kind of um notion of gnosis, right? Um I, I assume you're you're fairly familiar with the, the term gnosis, like spelled with a G, like G N uh O Yeah, meaning knowledge. I -I yeah, right. What makes gnosis different from knowledge, as far as you're aware? I'm not familiar enough with the terms to to say. All right, for, so for the listeners, and they'll have heard this 
uh, probably before, but it's, you, it should be heard a thousand, thousand times. So gnosis um, is is the essentially divinely revelatory knowledge of the mind of God, or that is which is. So um, one who obtain it's like a a bit like Plato's philosopher kings. Um, it's also the idea of the uh, let's say the Hegelian, I should say, difference between verstand, which is the lower form of understanding, and vernunft, which is this um, idea of true knowledge. Right, you can kind of see the no true Scotsman fallacy coming out right away. Um, true knowledge that comes through this internal reflection. Um, it's essentially what Kant was trying to get to um, by synthesizing uh, categoricals. I know I'm probably butchering Kant. I haven't really, I haven't read Kant's work firsthand because I ordered a copy of the Critique of Reason. Did you know that that book in tiny little print is like as thick as a Bible? And uh, so, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's obnoxious. I did not think, I, I ordered like De, Rene Descartes' Meditations and it's like this tiny little thin pamphlet and then this giant brick for all the, the freaking Germans. It's, it's insufferable. Like, I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy Nietzsche wrote in aphorisms because if he didn't, he would have written like, I don't know, just here to the moon. But the, the difference between knowledge and gnosis, there actually, in a sense, isn't too much different. So knowledge classically defined as like a justified, true belief. So it's something that one believes, but that thing that they believe must also correspond with reality, must also be true. But then the reason that they believe it must also be valid, right? And so we could think of this in the form like of an argument made in a, uh, via a syllogism or some form of syllogistic logic where... You've got a line of premises. The premises are true. Um, the connection between the premises, they all follow to the conclusion. Uh, and then you have a sound argument. And uh, if a belief is predicated on a sound argument, then you might say that constitutes knowledge. But your aphorism actually points out that, and you just pointed out here on the air, that actually there's a problem and that problem that problem is relevance um so i don't want to jabber on too long but the problem of relevance is that you actually need to know which and all as much as you can information is relevant to the conclusion because take as we know if you strip out one piece of vital information that could change the uh the whole of the conclusion, right? Like you add one premise or take one premise away, um, you could invert an entire argument. Which is exactly what you that, do when you're trying to build a narrative. Yeah, it's precisely what you're trying to do. Uh, I used to, I taught university courses and uh, when I taught them to do um, an argumentative uh, essay, which is basically every kind of essay, essentially. Uh, I used to give this really funny example. Uh, I would say, okay, well, uh, I shot John dead. Okay. Or, uh, I shot Brad dead since you're here with me. Shot him dead. Bam. I'm a murderer. But then if I say Brad kicked, <laughs> Brad kicked down my door with a shotgun and I pulled out my revolver and I shot him dead. Okay. The, maybe that's self-defense, right? And then if I say, well, I was taking pot shots at Brad out my window when he stormed up to my front door with a shotgun uh, and I pulled out my, uh, I don't know, 
uh, Glock 17 and shot him dead. Um, so you could see how, uh, as you add on information, like you can, you can cut the information where you want to, um, change, let's say, change what seems to be true. And then we end up at this place where if that's the case, is there ever an, is there ever an end at which it would be, uh, proper and valid to stop searching like what do you think is there ever a point where we could actually have I, I think i know the answer but is there a point where we could say okay we have searched enough we know all the relevant details to come to a conclusion to say that we know a thing depends on uh, you'd have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis and you've got to draw the line somewhere that's probably going to be fuzzy depending on what it is you're talking about like in the example above if i was to say i was, I was taking shot pot shots at marquise's house because i was angry and drunk because my daddy beat me that day or something like that then you're then you're you're veering into things that are not relevant to the situation at hand at least one might argue <clears throat> yeah you you could add in details that are the uh the whispers of pathos, right? Because, like, I might say, "Well, my, bad, my dad beat me that day," and then maybe someone who's very compassionate, very high in trade agreeableness, gets kind of sappy about it. And it's like, "Well, you know, it's not really Brad's fault. You know, his dad beat him that day, and he needed to vent his frustration somehow." And you know, that 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 Marquis there, he's like a a weird loner, and he's he's bald. He's probably a skinhead. Um, <laughs> Well, hey, if they can pitch uh, Stefan Molyneux as a freaking uh, white... I actually think there are some things that he was saying around the time when uh, the alt-right was not uh, occupied by any particular faction that he said yeah, around those that times. That, what it is now. Yeah, so he, he said some spicy things around that time um, that I, I think got him... made him vulnerable to being put there. But I'm... You know, I'm a big fan of Nietzsche, who who did the exact same damn thing, uh, and made it really easy for the Nazis to appropriate his work. So, uh, you know, it happens. Now, you mentioned, uh, Brad, that uh, you were an atheist, and then now that you're not, I assume uh, I'm not going to assume anything. Tell me about it. Um, I was raised Anglican, and I think as a kid, you just believe in. I mean, kind of upbringing where you kind of just believe in God because other people say, say that it's a thing. I don't really think too much about it. And then really it was one George Carlin routine, the one where he talks about God that turned me into an atheist for quite a while because my best friend introduced me to that. Um, then I was, you know, kind of like you, pretty much your typical edgy atheist in a fashion which faded over time and I quite know how to describe the journey beyond that. Um, Still not a Christian myself, but um, I, don't look, I don't care for the materialist worldview anymore either. Yeah, we're we're seeing that a lot. I do want to say that the uh, George Carlin being the uh, fall from fall from religion is a really great like origin story, like uh, mm -hmm. perhaps not origin story. It's like uh, I guess in, in we'll, we'll call it like the fall before the redemption. Um, <laughs> so it's interesting though that you said like the atheism faded and the reason why i think that's interesting is because 
Um, I really came from the notion of atheism as not a thing rather than a thing. Now, when I say that, I do recognize that that was not true for many, many atheists around the time that um, I began to become critical of religion, particularly in high school, early college. Um, so I, I recognize that when I say that, what I'm about to say actually does not apply um, to most of those uh, people then, um, particularly the people we had mentioned uh, heretofore. It, it was more it was more like the anti-theism angle faded, and then you know it was more like it moved away from uh, from being an atheist. Yeah, that sounds about right, right? Or, look, Brad, we're parsing out the labels. Like by the end of this, you're, you're going to be able to like look <laughs> here. Here are my labels. I will paste them on my shirt. You will say hello, and then look at my shirt as if I'm a Walmart greeter. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, yeah. So the anti-theism phase. I actually really noticed that that. Uh, that's very, very typical, right? The uh, the desire to, uh, you know, we, we might see this with the postmodernists of our day, which I think we both have um, a general distaste for. The the types I'm talking about are those who will, let's say, in the artistic fields, because that's where they come from, is lit like the literary works, um, or lit liter the literary end of academia, I should say. Uh, they critique great works out of, uh, let's say, envy. Envy that they themselves um, perhaps can't live up to the ideals set or the standards set by those who came before. And it feels, you know, especially when you're young, it feels good to be able to uh, attack a titan, right? Like it feels really, makes you feel strong. Um, and then as you get older and as you start to become more comfortable with yourself, more confident in yourself, more... Um, able to uh, move yourself in the way that you want to in the world, perhaps gain more autonomy, but th that comes with just getting older. Uh, at least for me, I know that uh, desire, well, I shouldn't say the desire as a whole went away, but the, particularly the anti-theist desire started to fade. Is that kind of how it felt for you? I, I think so. And so what would you say now, right? So if the anti-theism uh, faded away, uh, have you have you moved back into the direction of Christianity in particular, or is it something that you you're wrestling with? No, because I, I like like I said, I kind of just used believe in God as a kid because because um, because adults tell you it's a it's a thing, and we like we went to church, but I would I would never I wouldn't say I was ever um, a believer of any strong conviction. So you know, it, it wasn't that hard. Like, like hence the joke about a George Carlin routines. It wasn't that hard to to you know, knock me off that uh, um, a train of thought or however it is you want to uh, conceptualize it. Okay, so that 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 places, I think really that probably places up in a similar place. I, I was, you know, I wasn't raised religious, but I wasn't raised like anti-religious, um, hmm. and. You know, particularly after the conversation with Adam, and I think we'll have some uh, commonality here. I find myself um, being the maybe you find yourself being this too. Tell tell me if you do. Um, do you find yourself being the not particularly religious person in a room full of religious people that you get along with? Um, kind of, yeah, because um. Well, you know, some of the servers were in have a couple of people who were who were, who were um, 
we're creationist Christians, which, which you know, if if I told that to my to my teenage atheist self, you'd probably look at me weird. Yeah, right. There are people that I respect because they're very, you know, because they're very articulate and, and good at what they do, and they can, you know, have a, have a good conversation with. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, we talked about aphorisms. I'd written one. I think it was called uh, "Curious Heretics" because I, I thought it sounded snazzy. The title, uh, but <laughs> but it is something I've noticed where there seems to be a confluence of um, what had I think unrightly or unnecessarily um, been, let's say, factionations opposed or people opposed and put into camps and factions that I actually don't think are fundamentally in opposition toward one another. Um, like, like you mentioned, we're both in our discord servers and on social media um, with, with people who are, uh, I can only assume, you know, devoutly and very religious in the very, in, in a sense, a very fundamental, a very fundamentalist sense and in a way that I too, my teenage self uh, would not believe the level of, just okay and acceptance and even I shouldn't even use the word even because uh, I use the word even respect but like um, I do actually have a lot of respect uh, perhaps because I find myself not really concerned with the subjectivity uh, which is to say the beliefs of um, of other people is uh, is that kind of do you feel the same way Brad about about it just like it's you know a detachment from somebody else's beliefs I think so because at the end of the day, um, how do I phrase this? I don't make any claims to that absolute truth myself. Hence the uh, hence the aphorism there. So I don't you know I don't see any reason to uh, for it to bother me what somebody else's uh, someone else's claims are. You know because because they don't know they believe. But I, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a liberation through agnosis. Like, so agnosis, like not gnosis. Like, once you let go of the idea that you have to know, then all of a sudden it's okay that you don't know, and then therefore it's okay that other people believe differently. Mm. Yeah, I think that's perhaps the... Um, that's probably like the ideal of the liberal toleration that we see if you like... Um, look at some of the philosophies i'm thinking like Locke, and then the uh, american uh founders whose uh politics were essentially largely rooted in john Locke. um i think that's really what the idea was um and behind tolerance um why is that real oh do you, is there something you want to say Rev? no Okay, sorry. I'm, I'm picking up little uh, blips on the audio, and sometimes it's just background noise. But um, tell me what you think of this, right? Because this is kind of a fun idea. Uh, so I think in the same way that one finds kind of uh, freedom and peace in recognizing that absolute knowledge or gnosis is, uh, we, we can argue, essentially unattainable by human beings. It might just be unattainable flat out, like there's like to anything, right? Maybe, who knows? Um, but at least to us. And insofar as it is unattainable and you recognize that you, you're free, but imagine 
if you don't think that, right? And this is kind of a fun idea. I think that people can become possessed by this solipsistic spirit. Are you familiar with solipsism? I need to hear a definition again. Uh, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but essentially like the solipsist, um, because he can not with any determinate, and he cannot deter in any determinate way uh, prove anything that exists outside himself, um, assumes that, I, I don't know if they have to make this assumption, but typically when someone's, uh, you know, slant, I don't want to use the word slander because it says a lie. If someone's labeled or so even self-labels as a solipsist, typically they don't believe anything is necessarily real that is not them, right? So they're kind of trapped in like a, a subjective box. This, this is the penultimate, like my lived experience is all that there is because nothing else exists <laughs> outside of it, right? Well, the thing, this is, this is something I had uh, stumbled upon a little bit a couple years ago and have only more recently gotten better at articulating. Uh, I think that if you believe that um, you can know uh, with like this kind of uh, perfect knowledge, what it makes you do is it makes you um, think that something that is subject to you is that which is. Right. It makes you uh, essentially start to, uh, in religious terms, you start to worship an idea that you have. You start to worship a false idol. Um, maybe that uh, false idol is a particular favorite institution, in which case it would be like your own Tower of Babylon. But the thing is, if in fact um, one isn't correct in one's uh, thought that he knows, right? Let's say one is in error. He doesn't actually have access to the objective 100% transcendental truth. Then what he's looking at is uh, a subjective phenomena. And that changes the dynamic between people. Because if what I, if my entire world is predicated on uh, subjectivity at its basis, that means that your subjectivity threatens my subjectivity and mm -hmm. is that is that follow am i tracking so far or have i jumped off a cliff somewhere oh no you're you're um i follow um to put it in a more simple way it's, it's funny i remember playing um the first assassin's creed game back when it first came out and hearing um the character malik say to altair you cannot know anything only suspect and it's only like it's probably only very recently that I finally grasped the uh, the depth of the meaning of that statement. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how um, bits of wisdom sit from your childhood uh, like that. Do you have any more? Because I have one, but I want to pick more out of you if I can. Um, that's the only one that uh, comes to mind at the moment. So one for me, I love this one. And uh, you can really test someone's character by how they respond to it. So um, when I was in like sixth grade uh, on, uh, I think it was on Adult Swim, uh, Fully Cooley had aired for the, the first time, I think in the US. And it had layers of effects on me as a kid that I wasn't prepared to interpret, but only could understand much later. Uh, and even now, if I go back and watch it, it's like watching a movie, right? It's like six episodes. Um, there's so much packed in there. But one of the lines 
Um, so you've got the characters um, Haruko and Nalta, and they're uh, being vagrants on the road, and, they, and uh, essentially they got two different packages of instant ramen. And uh, Haruko got this really great big one that sucks because it's like a generic brand. And now they got like a smaller package uh, that actually tastes good. And so um, he criticizes her like you can't just get the big one because you got to go with what you know. And then she like steals his and gives him hers and he eats it. And he's like, oh, this is really bad. And here's where the wisdom comes in. Right. Because she says to him, well, sometimes eating ramen that tastes really bad can be kind of fun, too, you know. I think that's the exact quote. If I did, if I got that, I'll be happy with myself. Um, but I usually uh, change it. I just say, yeah, sometimes eating food that tastes bad be, can be kind of fun too. Um, Brad, what do you think the meaning behind that is? We'll use my version of it. Sometimes eating food that tastes bad can be kind of fun too. Because uh, it might become an experience that sticks with you that you can um, you know, laugh about later or get some broader lesson out of. That's exactly right. Uh, so for the, those of you listening out there, take Brad's translation, because I think that's really, that is something that's, you know, really pertinent, right? Like sometimes those bad experiences, even if they feel bad in the moment, are actually really transformative and really uh, meaningful, right? Um, and so we shouldn't get we shouldn't uh, try to eliminate all bad experience from our lives. And I think people, uh, to tie this back to that bit about subjectivity we were talking about before, I think that's kind of what's happening, right? So um, they, in order to escape discomfort, they they craft for themselves some object of perfection. That's their utopia, their Tower of Babylon, their gnosis by which they can eliminate all uncertainty from the world. And psychologically speaking, that's like eliminate. It's like killing all the dragons. There's no deep depths from which a, a dark monster can ascend. That really pisses me off because I wanted to say descend, but that's the opposite word. But it starts with D, damn it. And I love alliteration. Um, <laughs> you probably, yeah, you're probably sick of all my goddamn alliterations by now. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Brad's been <laughs> uh, reading through my they novel. They can be fun. They can be fun, okay. Because uh, I use them way too much. Um, but yeah, people, you know, when they get caught up in their subjectivity, um, they're doing that because it protects them. And what does it protect them from? It protects them from uh, reality. And why do they need protection from reality? Well, I mean, if you've ever had any adverse experiences, you know exactly why you need protection from uh, from reality. But the the problem is that it puts us um, it puts us in that place where people uh, viciously and violently defend their their foregone conclusions, right? Because if if other, if everyone else believes differently, then that puts me now uh, at the margins, and it makes my my belief um, have less power, and so people don't believe it as much, and I can't try and work my orc magic by just like believing the thing and wishing it to be true, and then being able to delude myself into the truth of it as a kind of uh, kind of opiate. Um, so I think really, you know, to tie these all three together. You know, you got to remember that you can't know. You can only suspect. And in your suspicions, um, be willing to, to to put them down for a second to try a bad experience because sometimes that's important. That didn't work at all, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it's probably a good yeah, place to move on. Sometimes it just be a bad experience and not worth the bother. Yeah, sometimes things are, are uh, well, I have this saying 
and you can tell me what you think of it. Um, nothing is just anything, right? It's always also something else. Um, do you think that's true? So something, nothing is just anything, right? Not just or only, but also, I think is the phrasing I had for it. Uh, not necessarily, because usually when you say that you're comparing it to something greater, like if you hear a, hear a noise outside and you say, oh, it was just the wind, you say just as a comparison to the greater threat that you thought it might have been. Not to say that's all that it is, but it's not what you thought it was. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair application, right? Because it, it, it can, it's now constrained, right? It's like uh, I'm saying it was just this and not this specific other thing. But it doesn't exclude it from being, um, you know, describable outside of the frame of the comparison, right? So, where was I going with that? This is the risk of of of, of running off. Um, not just, but only. Who knows? I was going to ask you about music. Let's just move there, and if it, it comes back to us, we can we can wander <laughs> back. So. Um, yeah, so what got you into music? Um, a, um, a teacher of mine I had in elementary school is no longer with us. Um, we, did a, we did a school of rock type. Probably when I really started to get more serious about music is when we did a school of rock type thing, grade seven, where I played the drums for a couple of songs, which that was what I wanted to do for a while was, was play the drums. And I don't know what sparked my interest in it, probably just in the bands that I was listening to at the time. But I eventually got picked up the bass and i've been at that for over 10 years now damn that's some commitment um i assume <laughs> you're pretty decent then somewhat uh are you playing for a, a band now or do you just practice out on your own uh, it's we're, we're attempting a band it's uh, myself and uh, my guitar player connor we're uh, we're called king's wrath we've been looking for a singer for the better part of a year now uh, we got some demos out there if anyone feels like checking us out it's a uh, king's wrath official on youtube King's Wrath official on YouTube. So if you're a singer, join this man's three man. Or would it be a three man band with a singer? It would be. His brother okay, is doing some samples for us, um, but we don't have a full lineup other than that. It's just the two of us right now. All right. So join this man's three man band. Um, and uh, what a, there's got to be a word for this for like something. Give our music the voice it needs. Yeah. Um, so uh, I assume you're doing, uh, you guys play metal, right? Yeah, it's um, some iteration of power metal. Uh, tell me about metal, because I don't know anything about metal. Uh, I saw in your little Discord thing that if, like, if you don't enjoy metal, then you're not friends. And I'd like to remain friends with you, Brad. So <laughs> educate me, educate me about metal so I can know what to listen to. That is a line from a Man of War song that I listened to recently. I believe it's called Metal Warriors, where he like he just he's, he says that that line aloud. He's, he's he almost says it in a falsetto, and I, I laughed so hard when I heard it because it's said with such conviction. It's, it's funny. Man of War are viewed as one of those like kind of kind of joke bands because they're, they're so over the top in their image and their music and their lyrics and all that. But it's it's actually good shit to listen to. All right, so Man of War is good to listen to, and uh, what what kind of metal would they would you say they play? Because I literally know nothing. So you like you're talking to an infant here. Okay, th that'd be power metal. Okay, that's power metal. Um, and and what's what makes power metal like like I said, break it down for me. What makes power 
metal different than other forms of metal and what other forms of metal are out there? I know that there's something called death metal. I don't know anything about it. Mm. Okay, that's a lot to break down. Um, I guess what I can start with is, is in the 70s, you had bands pop up that started to play something more distinct from what rock and roll was at the time. They were playing stuff that was louder and faster and darker and all that. Black Sabbath is pretty much viewed as the band that kicked it off with their eponymous song, Black Sabbath, those doomy chords that you hear. Um, Motorhead was really influential in it. Judas Priest um, really helped helped kick it off as well in the late 70s. They, they became... Um, they, they, they pretty much were the were um, the earliest examples of a distinctly metal band. It was, it was really in the late seventies that metal found its own own identity separate from from rock and roll, and then in the eighties it really took off with all the different subgenres uh, uh, spinning off and doing their own thing. Uh, and just list a couple of the subgenres for me. Uh, the biggest ones would be thrash metal that took off in the 80s that's uh, uh, like your, your metallica megadeth slayer anthrax um you know that that's usually uh faster paced stuff inspired by punk rock a little bit with harsh vocals death metal is like kind of like thrash metal but down tuned and with um the, the cookie monster vocals as they're colloquially known power metal is often played fast but with um usually with with clean singing vocals um, usually with uh, Dio was really um, influential in that in the early days in bands like Halloween and Blind Guardian and there's a lot of um, fantasy lyrics in uh, fantasy inspired stories and power metal songs um, you've got black metal which is um, the, the, you know, the, 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 the the scary stuff it started with bands like Venom and Bathory um, where they took the satanic thing from black like um was a lot to mull over, but um, essentially it was taking some of the satanic references from Black Sabbath and looking more serious about it. And then, then that, that that took off in the, into the Norwegian scene where they became actually serious about it. Um, let's see, power metal, death metal, thrash metal. Those are those are the. You know, then you've got offshoots like doom metal, which is um, the formula for which Black Sabbath um, created, and then I guess you know morphed into its own thing. Um, then there's there's all kinds of subgenres like gothic metal and um, Viking metal, melodic death metal. It's often said there are as many subgenres as there are bands. Well, that's good to know. Uh, I, I I'm really happy to know uh, the definition of power metal because that actually sounds like a place where I would like to uh, explore. I, I like to investigate new um, to to use the the damned word genres of music. Um, and uh, I think that's that sounds like where I'd like to start because I do I do enjoy clean vocals, um, and I know there's a lot of similarity. I've been told, and it's I, I can actually only believe it because I don't know enough about music. Um, that actually uh, a lot of metal is um, similar in its composition, its musical composition to uh, classical music, and uh, a lot of like very you know high skill, um, sophisticated musical compositions. Is that is that true, or is that just something that people say? Oh, that is. That's accurate. Its its roots are in the blues, like Black Sabbath, originally a blues or a jazz band called Earth. Because um, of course, you have a lot of you have a lot of technically competent jazz players as well. So that probably has had its influence. But then, I don't know what exactly it was that it was added to the formula. But you had a lot of um, particularly guitarists adding uh, classical 
uh, elements to it, uh, making the music that much more technical. Like the the um, I don't know if the I don't know if the guys in Iron Maiden are classically trained or anything like that, but I think they they started using some uh, interesting scales that was brought to form. Like Randy Rhodes is one of those famous uh, neoclassical guitarists. Uh, Cliff Burton of Metallica. He was he was uh, he had a background in music theory that he brought to their music. Um, so yeah, like, like I said, um, 70s is when it is when it started, became distinct from rock and roll, and then the 80s is when it took off and really became its own thing. Awesome. Does um, does your music ever cross over um, with your uh, writing? What I mean by by that, I mean I can mean anything by that, right? So um, in term, uh, because for those of you who don't know, but you should know because Brad's been on the podcast, but he is an author. Hopefully, he'll be coming out with. Uh, a novel here within some amount of time that I could promote and we could shill and you could buy and support him and then support his uh, artistic endeavors and get him a damn singer. I want this uh, power metal band to, I want to be able to buy an album from you guys. I actually really do. Um, Appreciate your efforts, sir. Yeah. Uh, but no, uh, does it, do you ever have any artistic crossover between the, the two mediums? Between my own work no, not that comes to mind anyway, because um, I don't have much, a whole lot written in the way of lyrics for. Um, no, I, I do have some lyrics written. Some of it's inspired by other other stories, um, some by real life. But um, if the core of that question is, have I ever written a song out of, out of something that was also a short story? No, not really. I pretty much keep them separate. Although my novel I'm working on now, a lot of that, a lot of the content of that story is inspired by some of my favorite heavy metal albums. Ah, so the inspirations crossover then. Yeah, um, and that's 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 a thing in metal as well, where a lot of bands have taken a, a lot of influence from, um, particularly fantasy fiction. Like there are a ton of bands that are named after um, places or characters or what, where, where, what have you. In the Lord of the Rings, that's 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 had a huge influence on uh, on metal, especially in power metal and black metal, um, which is funny because they're they're so they're so starkly different those two genres. But um, yeah, there's been a lot of there like Blind Guardian, their sixth album, Nightfall in Middle Earth, is a concept album based on the Silmarillion. You know that makes perfect sense. I went to a symphony. There's um, uh, Wheeling doesn't have much. But we have a um, this building. It's the Capitol Music Hall. So Wheeling at one point was the capital of West Virginia, and um, Basically, it was in a long stretch, the only way across the Ohio River for a while. And so um, at one point, there was a decent amount of uh, money here. And there were, uh, for the time, a decent number of people. Uh, and so you had this like piece of cultural significance. Why am I bringing it up? Well, I went and saw, saw the Wheeling Symphony uh, months ago now. Probably, it might even be... It might even be almost a year. I lose track of time. But the the re when I was there and I was listening, and I hadn't really listened to much classical music. Uh, classical is probably not even the right way to describe it. But nonetheless, I was listening, and I realized listening that I was being taken on this journey. Like I could start to hear the sound. It's weird to say this. As help me out if I stumble around, but it's like I heard the sounds of nature, like I was being taken through a forest or over a mountain, or I could feel the wind in the instruments. And uh, it would make perfect sense, particularly like for fantasy, where you are taking stories that are very much embedded in that kind of, you know, magic, like restoring the magic to nature that perhaps man once sensed when we are closer to it um, in the music. Uh, is what I'm saying making sense? Is 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 that like a the perhaps the connection? 
Oh, that makes perfect sense to me. In fact, it was I would I would say it's music that's given me um, new ideas about um, something divine in this world because I because I th I do believe there's something divine in music. Yeah, you know, uh, I think it was Richard Wagner who thought that, and uh, Nietzsche was good friends with him, and that's how I know uh, about this with with Wagner. And he had this essentially what sounded like a music cult, but uh, I think Nietzsche also kind of believed it. Uh, and I, I, I suspect that I believe it too, that music is the purest form of art because it somehow directly, uh, it, it, it doesn't like reference a concept. Like if I write a word down, the word is like a categorical that fits over a generality of things that like I interpret through my senses um, that aren't exactly the same in substance and are similar in form. Like it's, but with music, it's not that. Like you listen, and for some reason, that is like inexplicable. Some tones, some chords. Uh, I'm gonna start running out of words because I don't know anything about music. Uh, but they, they, they take you somewhere, and it's not like the sounds. This is my experience. And correct me if I'm wrong. It, like sometimes the chord of the the sound, the tone, the uh, whatever it is, it doesn't even have to sound like the experience it gives you but it still gives you that experience reliably. Do you get that, that same uh, experience with music yourself? Yeah. Cause there are, there are, um, the simplest example of that I can give is the difference between major and minor chords where uh, major chords typically sound, you know, the, the, um, are the happy ones and minor are the uh, sadder gloomy sounding ones. Like if you, if you play an E minor and, and, and if you play an E major and E minor right next to each other, you'll hear the difference and you'll, um, you you can see how they're used in different pieces of music to a different effect, um, and get getting with the idea you were, you were getting at with uh, Wagner before. Uh, I heard uh, Jordan Peterson say a while ago, and I don't know he was quoting someone else. I can't remember who, but uh, it's uh, all art aspires to the condition of music. Hell yeah, that's true. I mean, I I know like as an author, um, and I think. I miss the mark on this a lot, but I definitely aspire to do it. And I, th I, I try to encourage other people to do it where I can. It's not correct for all styles of writing, so I don't push it too much. But, um, you know, I, I, when I'm reading, like I want to hear the music in, in the words. Like it's almost like I want every, not every book, but I want the fiction I'm reading to be like a lyrical poem. Uh, I want it to, to have that music embedded in it. Um, do you aspire to that in your writing as well? Or is it just something that is it, is it something that happens? What do you think? I, I wouldn't say that's something I consciously go for because that, sh that, that changes so much over time as I change, but I can see where um, you would trying to be do the same. You would be trying to do the same thing foundationally that you would with music where you've, you know, essentially you're, you're piecing something together to a desired effect and you're, you know, working with sounds in the case of music and words in the case of uh, in the case of writing and the results can be drastically different depending on how you configure these uh, these building blocks you're working with yeah there's another question uh, I lost it because I wanted to focus on what you're saying so he has these building blocks of writing uh, uh, here, here's something that that was on my mind earlier right so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot here. Uh, I have oh this boy. this story. I've had this story idea for years now. Uh, not that many years, actually, maybe just one year. I can't remember. I lose track of time. The point is, um, there was a uh, they they probably don't fall into the realm of metal, but uh, the uh, where would you place the the Canadian band Rush? 
What, what are they in? They're a rock band, but they have had their influence on metal. Like their early, um, it's, there, there's a passage in Temples of Syrinx where they do a galloping thing, and it really sounds like an Iron Maiden song before Iron Maiden. Um, another example comes to mind is I believe Mike Mike Portnoy, formerly a Dream Theater, said that when that band started out, they wanted to be a cross between Rush and Iron Maiden. So they and um, another example comes to mind: uh, Cliff Burton of Metallica. He was a big fan of. Uh, Eddie Lee cited him as an influence as a bass player. And one time, Eddie Lee showed up to a Metallica show, and he was and he was really really nervous, um, you know, before they were going on stage. So yeah, um, not a metal band, but they have definitely had the, the had their influence in metal. Yeah, well, they've had their influence on me, and so maybe you could help me with some metal influence that they that is I don't know cousin strains of trying to tie this in with like a evolutionary evolution metaphor can't do it doesn't matter um so i have this idea where um so you, you'll know where this is in the book so the the city of cynic um have you have you read that far yeah the, the uh southernmost city in um on the uh, on the island yeah yeah so um essentially at some point i want uh, a bunch of revolutionaries to like stand up against the uh like socialist fascist uh, dictatorship and I want them to they're the center of their movement to be around music like I want to have um, I want to have musicians playing freaking uh, like unicorn hair string guitars like <laughs> with with something I don't know but I because I, I, the song from Rush uh, Bastille Day have you have you heard Bastille Day I don't think I've listened to that one, but I have heard of it. It's off of um, non Caressive Steel, their third album. I think it is. Uh, I wouldn't know. I uh, the the album it's from, but uh, I haven't listened to that much Rush, but enough to have heard that the song. And that song, like, I need to capture that spirit, right? Where you take this like national, very nationalist song like i think they basically took the uh can what well, i assume that was some uh canadian national anthem or something uh that they they had the song it's, I mean, it's a i'm thinking bastille day is has something to do with the french revolution but i'm not sure yes you know it absolutely does it absolutely is yeah it's it's about the whole song is like uh i love that rush do this by the way um they a lot of times in their music when they're critical of something instead of attacking it in their song they they orient the lyrics from the perspective of the thing that they're critiquing and then just show you what it looks like so in bastille day they like embody the raving uh like murderous jacobin lunatic out to like uh they just murder people and salt the earth and to celebrate the Bastille uh, and the guillotine and just mm -hmm. off with their, off their fucking heads. Um, but yeah, I like, um, I don't know. Is there, if I know this is a kind of impossible to do um, with fiction, you're limited to what you can do with, with the written word. But if you could give me some advice for when I finally write the scene where I'm trying to capture the, capture the feeling that i get when i listen to bastille day i know you haven't heard the song but yeah it's in the same way like you hear music and it, it takes you there like you you now can be 
um, in that space and that when the way that that music is pure as we described um, is there any are there any thoughts like if, if you were tasked to you know capture the spirit of a particular uh, song in I don't know like a, a story for instance uh, you know what comes to mind for you what what would you what would you do to prepare for it? How might you approach it? Because uh, I, I really want to capture that spirit, but my my separation from music, like I, I'm not knowledgeable of music, and I'm not skilled with music uh, in any sense. So I feel I feel like I'm in over my head wanting to do this. So any advice would be helpful from an actual musician. <laughs> Me giving anybody advice, what I would have thought. Um, eh. Other than listening to the song, you got to think of how building blocks of what you're working with are meant to achieve a similar effect. It's funny because I'm because I uh, have a similar, I don't want to say conundrum, but a similar uh, task with uh, the story I'm working on now myself. Where there's this one blind blind guardian, my favorite band for the record. And there's this one song they have called the Bard Song off their fourth album. It's an acoustic ballad. A power metal band but it's one of their best known songs like when they play it live the audience knows every single word it, it, it's a hymn essentially and there's a chapter i wanted i have in mind i don't know if it'll even end up working out um but there's a chapter i have in mind that's going to be called the bard song and is going to content of that chapter is meant to have a um similar thing play out I guess on the importance of music is 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 a low quality way to describe it I'm aiming to give that chapter a feeling that that um, is reminiscent of the feeling of that song and how exactly to go about that I'm I'm really not sure myself I'm, I'm not sure what to uh, what to say there well part of the thoughts is listening to you talk about it um we talked about like being taken on the journey that the song takes you. So what do you think, mm. what do you think of the first thing is identifying from the song, like where it takes you and how it takes you there. I know that's a very vague way to say it, but does that make sense? Oh, that does. You want to be familiar. You, you want to be familiar enough with the song that you know, the feeling it's meant to invoke you more or less know the story that it's trying to tell, or at least you have, solid interpretation of it that even if it's not true you can you can spin it into something that works with the uh, the story you're working on i'm kind of doing that myself where um in, in the influences i take from my uh for the story i'm working on the influences i take from them from the uh, some of my favorite metal albums is kind of like i'm reimagining or reinterpreting them in a certain way yeah oh okay so that this this is actually really really interesting. So for you for you uh, listeners out there who didn't think that this is a writing cast, I guess you're wrong. It'll 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 be a music writing cast. Uh, <laughs> but but um, so the the places that the song takes you, you kind of described almost like a narrative arc. And what a narrative arc is, um, it's essentially a moment uh, in conflict that uh, resolves at that climactic. And I think, I think uh, in terms of like the term climax, that was used originally in music, is it not? As a, and then it was adopted later to a theater. I don't know myself. Uh, oh no, I'm thinking of the word crescendo. Doesn't matter. Um, the, oh, yeah, that, that, uh, that sounds about right. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think it's the same idea. Like there's there's a building of tension and a setting of tone moving toward a moment. Um, now I know in I don't know if this is true in music. You can tell me. Um, in poetry, there is typically even if you don't mean to put it there, it almost always comes about um, a a turning point. Right. Uh, it it comes about the same place that the climax would in a story. So it's usually like toward the end uh, in the latter quarter. And then there's a kind of falling out resolution that, that comes from that turn in the poem um, that kind of corresponds with the peak of a narrative arc that moves toward the resolution. Did this, is the same thing true when you're composing a song? Yeah, you'd probably think be thinking of the bridge of a song, which is typically in very standard um musical composition like like in pop songwriting you generally generally go verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus ending you can get more complicated than that and, and play around with things and move move parts around if you like but that's essentially where it goes and the bridge is where it breaks away into something into something different and then it kind of um you 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 break away into something different but you still find a way to resolve it and bring it back to where you were originally in the in the chorus and the last verse and the and the uh the outro roger genius um <laughs> I, I, no i mean it like look okay so uh for those of you who can't see my face which is none of you because i'm not recording video <laughs> um okay so what we've done here is we've identified that there is in fact um uh, I, there is, in fact, an order to the universe. We have discovered the mind of God. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so only, only partially. <laughs> I'm only partially kidding because I actually do think that. Well, this look, man. This is why I wanted to have this conversation because I knew, I knew that if I kept uh, poking at you, I would discover wisdom. Um, so. Okay, so the bridge is the turn. The bridge is the climax. Okay, so if I'm taking this and tying this into my understanding of uh, literature, which I think should just correspond across these mediums, because the mediums are trying to correspond to reality. And if reality is that which is, reality is God. This is why I said we, we're going to know the mind of God here. Uh, I don't actually think that, by the way. I'm not a Gnostic wizard. I, I'm merely an agnostic <laughs> wizard. So uh, all of my Christian friends, it's okay. I'm like Merlin, the pagan wizard, helping the Christian King Arthur. Don't come after me. Please still be my friends. <laughs> um, but uh, so what that means is that if you want to take the spirit, that's the right word too, right? If you want to take the spirit of the song, you look at the structure of the song, um, and you've got these essentially the the, the musical forms of a, a complication in the plot of a of a novel. So we, as you shift from um, it was uh, was it chorded chorus? Were those the terms you used? Verse and chorus. Verse and chorus. See, I'm total. I'm totally ignorant. I apologize. So it was the ver verse chorus. Um, so the chorus. The chorus is the part of the song where it's got the part. It, it, the, the the chorus is the part of the song that repeats, um, that everybody remembers, and then the verse is the um, it's the the lead into that that varies. Mm, so that does make sense. So like the verse is almost like the, I would describe that as the complication, right? The verse then, because it's something that's different. It takes you to a different place. It has yeah, the components like that. that you don't expect. Um, 
And so that's the that's the rising action essentially is that switching bef- between verse and chorus, and that's leading us into the the bridge, which is that lead into the climactic moment um, that then leads back down to the resolution. So if we're if we're structuring a chapter or a story or anything in narrative to to really embody the song, at least structurally speaking, we do actually have a guide point. Right, because you can take those components of the song, and you can map out the rising action of the plot um, with the movements of the song, and that's one component. And then you can layer on tone, right? Because the tone of the song you could identify with those same components. Um, and then once you've layered on the tone, then the only thing left really is the theme, right? So uh, when I use the word theme, um, I'm actually going to do a, a podcast about theme with one uh, Fallon Clark. So uh, she's an editor, and if you need stuff edited, uh, particularly she does developmental editing for stories. So uh, rather than stylistic editing, you can check out Fallon. Uh, free shout out for her. Um, but in terms of the theme, what I mean by that is the thesis. Like the, the this is going to be interesting because now we're going to investigate this music, right? So if there's a theme in literature that corresponds to like the thesis of an argument or of an essay, which is a claim about what is true, and a claim about what is true is a claim about that is which is. Again, we're, we're, we're investigating the mind of God. Um, so so what – so is, is there a theme? I, mean, I, I expect yes. So like it, do songs, in a sense, make claims about truth? about life, about that is, which is. Not necessarily. They might be exploring those ideas then. That's an interesting, I, I, I don't think I have any more to add than that. Well, let's take it from a broad approach, right? Because I suspect that in the same way that you could have a very simple story, you could have a very simple song. And that very simple song is going to describe maybe one component of life. Like I'm here in West Virginia, right? So uh, I hear country music a lot. And one of the things that make, uh, again, I'm outside my field, so I might say something stupid. So please correct me. I'll probably say something stupid. But one thing I've noticed is that one thing that makes country music what it is, is that almost universally, the um, aspect of life that it describes is a very simple component, right? It doesn't, you know, typically country music does not investigate uh, deep or intellectual endeavors. Uh, It doesn't answer those types of questions, but it does describe elements of the lives of the people who typically really like to listen to country music. So I, I could say, tell me if you think this is wrong, as an easy example, something like a country song about uh, drinking or a country song about your truck or your dog uh, or your ex-wife. Um, I think that's about all. Genre there, so. Yeah, uh, that was my goal, right? <laughs> but, but that's like a common element to um, the – I'm trying not to use Nietzschean terms. I was about to call them like the West Virginia herd. Uh, but <laughs> – <laughs> but but yeah, like not to disparage them, but like you know, to the the everyman rural, you know, folk. Is that not? Would we not say that the claims made in those songs 
uh, or there are claims made in those songs about the, uh, about country life, about rural life of the common man uh, of that of that environment, and that you could even say that those songs are perhaps even true. Yeah, because they're they're just meant to be relatable to the um, to the lives of the people who 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 play it and who live it. You know, um, I, I, I'm I'm realizing what I should probably do is separate claim from truth. As um, I said earlier, you might just be exploring an idea. It's like you might just be putting something out there. Maybe this, you're 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 putting a claim out there, and maybe this is true. And that's probably the way that I would have to view it in my own storytelling. Because as established by the aphorism, I don't I, I dislike making claims to absolute truth because I could very well be wrong. Yeah, I think I mean you worded it earlier, so this ties in both your aphorism and the Assassin's Creed quote. Like you can really only suspect. You can't really know. Uh, and I think that's a good way to think about claims because you had said uh, in our conversation about that aphorism um, that you kind of got caught up on the fact that like you can't make a claim to absolute truth. So I get what you're saying when you're saying that, right? Because what you're saying is I actually don't know with absolute certainty. So it would be silly to make a claim about it. But then you run into a second problem and that second problem is that you're like a human being and you have to act in, in the world and you have to act as if a thing is true without so maybe claiming. In that case, maybe in that case, you redefine a claim as something you suspect. Yes. So like a claim so would be like, it would be like a uh, a belief that you're putting out as, to, to be tested, right? Like, because you might have a belief that you're not putting out in the world. It's just something you personally hold. But a claim is saying, okay, not only do I have this belief, but I'm throwing it out in the world to see if it's true. And you don't necessarily know whether it's true or not indefinitely, but like this is thinking a little bit scientifically because uh, I have a bit of a scientific background for my bachelor's degree. It was exercise physiology, which is basically exercise science, but um, they do actually study um, that with the same, well, hopefully now with more scientific rigor that you would do any other uh, scientific study. But, you know, you don't prove something in science, you fail to falsify. But as you continuously fail to falsify, um, you become more confident in the utility and reliability of the claim. And so we might say, stronger. Uh, say that again? Case for it becomes stronger. Yes. And so I think that's how we should think of the word claim. So to tie that back to music then. Um, so songs do then, or, or would we say, because I, I shouldn't just bulldoze over that. So would we say then that the songs do make, a, a sense, in a sense, a claim about, uh, about the nature of truth? You could probably argue that, again, whether or not it's... Um... Could say a claim is being made, whether or not the author or songwriter, or whoever actually believes it's true, maybe they're just exploring an idea, or just trying to tell a story from somebody else's perspective. Maybe they're trying to iterate someone else's claim. Yeah, and we might say the same thing about stories, even. And and the reason why I wanted to go through all that was to tie it back to theme. Yeah. Um, so 
so this this will solve both of our issues, right? Like I, I hope so anyway. So insofar mm-hmm. as we're tr- we're trying to cross these mediums, uh, I think looking at it structurally. So looking at uh, the verse and chorus, uh, moving to the bridge, uh, and then the resolution that comes after that is like looking at the. Um, essentially the the rising action of a story and the complications that would correspond to the verse uh, and then paying attention to the tone that is conveyed across those complications across the verse and then that what tone you return to when you come into the chorus um, and then the bridge being like the climactic moment what gets conveyed there right and then we're looking at theme so like uh, now, this might not correspond exactly perfectly because I imagine, well, I would think, I would think that there's probably something all the way down that differs in the bridge because you said that's that's where you really, you really play with the song and, and do something different is in the bridge, right? Yeah, where you deviate from the established order of the song, but you still find a way to uh, just to circle back to where you were before. Yeah, so we should see. Uh, we should see something claimed that resolves the uh, either the conflicts or the questions uh, or the uncertainty uh, or or that resolves a change in the tone that gets built up to before. And I think by following that pattern, uh, we might we might both be able to manage to to write out um, some bit of fiction with the same spirit of the songs that inspired them. Uh, what do you think of that analysis? I'd have to ponder it for a while, but um, I, th- I think that checks out so far. Uh, well, please do ponder it if, if I slipped up somewhere. And you listeners, you could let us know if you're watching this on YouTube in the comments what you think. Uh, really, we'd appreciate it. But really, um, yeah, that that... You know, conversation like that is really um, the reason I wanted to have you on uh, because I would have never thought of that on my own, right? Like I, I needed your expertise uh, in order to. Uh, no, you're laughing. I, and for those of you who can't see, I can see when he's chuckling inaudibly because uh, his microphone still picks it up, <laughs> but it ticks up on my little bar there. Um, but but really, uh, really, man, uh, don't discount yourself. Um, and I would say this. Uh, as a as a word of encouragement, particularly to anyone out there listening, that if you're in any artistic venture, um, it's a long, grueling process. But after you've been in it for enough time, you will have more expertise than you think that you do. And the reason why you'll think that you don't is because you spent so much time not having it and you got used to uh got used to being not very good um and you know usually we have at least i had this with as an author the awakening of your own inability like you start out and you're 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 starting to build some skill and you think oh yeah i'm great and then you have that moment and you're like oh no i'm awful and you just get stuck (laughs) there and that yeah i assume you're you're laughing you've had that common experience but uh with writing i don't know that i yeah and i um or so with writing music um it helps to have somebody to collaborate with to bounce ideas off of. 
Oh God, is that nice? <laughs> Not having to to bear the the lonely the lonely weight all all later. So I say that, but then you put two writers in a room and have them write a story together, and they'll they'll kill each other, be at each other's throats. <laughs> um, so you mentioned working with somebody else. What is it like um, composing music with with someone else? Because like like I just mentioned, as an author trying to compose a narrative with somebody else, like you can do it sometimes a little bit, but it gets kind of it gets kind of sketchy pretty quickly. Um, it, it seems different with music. How is it? Um, I don't know how different with music it is because with any as with any any collaborative endeavor, it's going to depend on the chemistry of the two or more people involved. Um, I'm lucky that uh, my, uh, my guitarist uh, he's a few years uh, he's a few years younger than me. I just met him a couple of years ago, but um, I think he and I are on a pretty similar wavelength musically. And usually it's the case that because um, because I'd recorded a lot of stuff for for, for years before I uh, met him, and then I brought some of my uh, some of my songs to the table, and we were um, pretty much bouncing ideas back and forth. I'll say, okay, this is how I think it should go next, and next, and he'll say, eh, that doesn't necessarily work that way. We can do this instead. Blah de blah. So, um, so in my experience, anyway, and this is with um, just with this current project, when with my uh, with a band I was in for a while, I didn't do any songwriting except for my bass parts. Um, but for the project I'm currently involved in, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty, it's um, an enjoyable process, I think. Does it help that you have different roles in a band? I think so, because um, you, those those components of the song need to be there. In the case of in the case of heavy metal, it's usually guitar, bass, drums, and vocals. And um, him being on guitar, me being on bass, I do write some guitar parts. Like I, I can riff. I could probably be a decent rhythm guitar player, but I'm a lot more practiced at bass. So, um, uh, he and I are filling in different parts of the song, and it's it's probably it probably comes out as more complete than it would if we were just two guitar players. Yeah, uh, I mean, I wish you could do that with writing. Like, I really mm -hmm. do. You just like, yeah, okay, you do the setting, I'll do the plot. Like, how the hell does that work? <laughs> uh, right. Uh. But that's really cool. Um, uh, I, do, I don't know where to go from here. Do you have any particular um, questions, anything that has bubbled up in your mind over the course of the conversation, Brad? Um, not that comes to mind immediately. All right. Well, we've been going on for a, a while. I don't want to keep you all day. Mm -hmm. um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, before we go, remember... Um, to check out King's Wrath, particularly if you are a singer. They need a vocalist. Uh, does a vocalist uh, obviously would have to live nearby, right? Uh, I don't know if you want to give out a local area that they, you know, they could they could check you guys out. Based in Prince Edward County, Ontario. I don't know if anybody listening will be there, but uh, if you are, hit us up. Uh, so check them out, guys. Um, do you have like a website or anything you can send people to? Um, we just we just have the YouTube channel for now. It's it's King's Wrath official on YouTube. All right, King's Wrath official on YouTube. Check them out. If you're not subscribed, subscribe, like their stuff, 
comment, support them, you <laughs> goddamn freeloaders. Um, speaking of freeloaders, uh, <laughs> I guess I'll take my turn to shill. Uh, before you guys go, um, please check out my Kickstarter. I'll probably have a little outro after the video talking about that. Uh, but also my other content, you can find all the other podcasts on my website. We're on Spotify and uh, Google. You can find us there and Apple uh, and SoundCloud and YouTube and uh my website already said that that yeah those are all the places you can find the podcast um check out my novel i'd really appreciate it. first chapter is like up there free i did an audio reading of it check it out uh, i'd really appreciate it uh and like i said if you're an author i do editing uh just look over my services see what you think uh, see if you're impressed and if i can help you out you can learn all the stuff that i learned in grad school without having to get one hundred thousand dollars in debt not that that will matter uh here in a few years when a hundred thousand dollars is what you carry in a wheelbarrow to buy your bread at your grocery store um oh, now with all of that <laughs> uh no it'll just be on like a little digital thing in your skin uh but that's that's neither <laughs> here nor there that's like a whole new podcast. i don't know what's worse yeah the dystopian future yeah let, let's not go to, let's not go down that rabbit hole right now <laughs> just hey, let we'll it go be. down that yeah, we'll let we'll let that uh, happen on on Discord. Um, <laughs> all right, guys, uh, this has been a really great conversation, Brad. Thank you for uh, helping us come to that epiphany about the the structure of music and its correspondence to other mediums. And uh, I'm really gonna listeners too. You think about it, but Brad, you think about it. I'll think about it because I think if it's true, if it's true that music is really the purest form of art and therefore is closest to like the the, tr the transcendent however you want to think about that uh whether you're religious or you're weird merlin like secular uh philosophers or or whatever what have you um you know th there could be really something deep there worth exploring more um, all right, Brad, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and for all of you listening, I will see you next time.